An extensive survey of hundreds of books, articles, and white papers concludes that women leave the tech industry because they're, quote, treated unfairly, underpaid, less likely to be fast-tracked than their male colleagues, and unable to advance. A study by the Center for Talent Innovation found that 20% of women in tech feel stalled in their careers, and 32% are likely to quit within one year. 48% of Black women in tech feel stalled. This excerpt from Rachel Thomas called The Real Reason Women Quit Tech and How to Address It speaks to the ever-present challenges women, especially those of color, face at work. The common narrative is that diversity and inclusion drive innovation. If so, why are Black women so often on the short end of the stick? And what does it look like to effectively support them? My name is Ade, and this is Living Corporate. So today we're talking about supporting black women at work. Yeah. So why do you think we're focusing specifically on black women and not talking about women as a whole? Well, one, I think because uh, the reality of intersectionality is real, right? The fact that we, we exist in uh, multiple spectrums and not just one or the other. I think that when you talk about, when we have conversations about gender, they often can be overly binary in a way that really erases very real experiences and perspectives of millions of people, particularly when it comes to black women, um, you know, oftentimes we ignore the fact that historically um, the feminist movements of the early 1900s um, ignored or aimed to kind of like neutralize and minimize black women's voices. We ignore the fact that um, black women have endured a history of abuse and negligence um, by our country. Um, I think that we really often enough just don't talk about and really seek to empower uh, black voices and experiences as particularly black voices and experiences who are women so um, that's why I think we're talking about we're zooming in on black women today so you can't see me but I nodded so hard throughout all of that Um, (laughs) I want you to know that if I have whiplash in the morning I'm billing you (laughs) don't bill me don't bill me, please. <laughs> no, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, to kind of expound it and share some of my own personal experiences, I mean, I've been in situations where I had my bonus docked at work, and I'm asking for con- concrete reasons as to why I don't have all my money, because I earned this bonus. And the manager is making excuses like, oh, well, um, your computer failed, therefore you didn't get this deliverable in on time and I'm like okay so you acknowledge that this was something that was not within my control and I'm still being punished for it anyway and I had no allies like I I, I had plenty of people who were nice to me uh, plenty of people um, within that space who would listen to me and bring me coffee and acknowledge that I would be one of the few people who would show up to work on Sundays to get work done, which I'm never doing again. Um, But nobody felt the need to go to bat for me the same way that they did for other people. And I think in retrospect, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, she's got this. Oh, she's strong enough to deal with this. Oh, she'll speak up for herself. I mean, and I did, but nobody was listening to me, right? Um, And that's just one of several occasions in in which I felt alone. Um, I felt like I was being punished for things that were outside of my control and even when I spoke up for myself people would treat me as though I was overreacting or disturbing the peace by just asking to be treated fairly right Um, and I found that ultimately I have had to be my own best advocate and I think in ways that others don't even have to think about right thinking about ways in which I am communicating, for example, I have a pretty sarcastic sense of humor. Um, yep. <laughs> thank you for backing <laughs> me up. Um, but I found that there are situations in which I, I have consciously dialed back 
because I recognized that there were people who would say that I am being mean or that if I am not relating to the topic at hand, for example, people are just kind of talking through experiences that I've never experienced. I, I'm not going to get up every day and wash my hair. That's not how my hair functions. And so if I'm <laughs> quiet in that conversation, um, it, people are, will report that I am being standoffish. And so there are all of these things and all these microaggressions that ultimately lead to me feeling isolated um, and unsupported in, in various workplace scenarios and situations. And so ultimately, I want a world in which I don't have to feel different. Like I can, I want to feel as though I can bring my whole self to work, my whole self, whether my twist out is bomb or not, whether I feel like I need to go on every single coffee run with every single one of my coworkers just so that I feel like I belong. Um, but but that's a, a conversation we can have a little bit later. Can you think of any situations that you've observed in which you felt that the black women or black women in your spaces weren't being taken seriously you were being treated differently so so for sure right Inter- interestingly enough though in my career um, i have not i haven't really worked with a lot of black women who are not actually much more senior than i was right so um you know my first experience when i think about it was i was in industry i was in uh, oil and gas industry and she's a, now a mentor of mine she's easily one of the most learned most educated people that I know period like she has an MBA a PhD she teaches she's a she's a college professor and it was interesting watching her navigate these spaces like despite her education people still like kind of like looking past her like looking through the things that she would say and kind of just cutting her off and Ooh. making a lot of very presumptive statements cutting her very, off Good cutting Lord. her off cutting her off yeah and watching her handle those situations with a lot of poise and grace um, and a, a still certain level of like firm confidence like okay nope I got it and she's you know she's about like my mom's age so certainly she's had a, she's had a, a litany of experiences that I, I would imagine have you know helped her kind of deal with what it means just to be who she is in the spaces that she exists but yeah I, I think I think that that's been like the most common experience that I've seen like black women in the workplace who would be directors, senior managers. Um, again, they were always senior to me and um, they would be, they just be dismissed. Like their, their opinion would be kind of like taken with a pound of salt, <laughs> slight eye rolls and, and things of that nature. Or kind of to your point, um, even I've seen situations and this has been in my experience as well, uh, but we're not talking about Zach's experience, we're talking about black women's experiences where people will you know, they'll smile and they'll nod and then they'll go off and they'll do exactly what they want to do anyway. Oh, oh, oh my God. This is, this is, this is <laughs> just bringing back so many different flashbacks. <laughs> no, but that's real though. I've seen that. Like where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, no, for sure. Or, um, like I said, they'll say things like they'll, they'll be very nice and, but then like they don't really support you. And I think that kind of like speaks to a larger phenomena of people who think that you being nice is in some way you being an advocate right like no like you're just being nice like like there's a difference and i think to your earlier point about you know people saying you're overreacting i think people it's so funny like when it comes to in my experience when it comes to people of color particularly women of color folks are really able to see the implications of their decisions with folks careers when it's their career Mm, say that but they don't understand like they don't understand the reality of your decision when it comes to my money, right? So, like, when you sit back and you say, okay, well, yeah, you know, your computer didn't work, and so we could have cut your bonus. You understand, like, you're taking away my money, you're taking away my livelihood. We live in a capitalist society. Like, I need bread to live. Right. So when you sit back and you make decisions that are going to impede my promotion, are going to impede my ratings, are going to impede my bonus, like, you're actively taking money out of my pocket. So if you're going to do something like that, well, you're going to take money out of my pocket, you need to have a quantitative, valid, ethical, and legal reason. Have an ironclad reason. An ironclad reason to do so. And it's just crazy that people don't grasp, like, yo, you're talking about my bread. We're going to have a problem. But guess what, though? I bet if somebody came at you like that, you'd be the first one to run to a lawyer, to run to whoever you're going to run to who's going to listen to you. You'd be on the phone with the EEOC. On the phone with EEOC. Lickety-splickety. So, like, why are we playing? <laughs> Lickety-splickety. Lickety-splickety. <laughs> 
yeah, um, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I, I spoke only of my own experiences, but there, there's like a litany of experiences um, of the women in my circle and the women who are well above me who um, are just dealing with things that I don't think they would be dealing with if they were white men, right? Um, just being excluded or people being condescending to you or um, people either treating you like you are the third rail and they can't speak to you like you're a regular human being or when they do speak to you it's with this air of condescension like they know better than you what to do when you're the subject matter expert and it's just I, I can't list literally every single one of them but I do know this. I know that the tide is, is going to have to turn. Right. Not just because um, I wish that it is so, but because people who have been studying and working and putting in time and effort to elucidate um, just what it means to be a black woman in America um, have extended themselves, right? And so I know that the work is being done. I know that I am just a small piece of a much larger, like a universe of women who are like, yeah, um, this is cute and all, but we're not having it. Thank you. Right. Um, and of those, I think you have the opportunity to speak to one very, very amazing writer. You want to introduce her? Yes. Yeah, so absolutely. So I got the opportunity around the Living Corporate had the opportunity to speak with Feminista Jones. Um, for those who may not know her, um, she is a, she's an activist, she's a black feminist, um, wonderful person, great writer, and she actually um, has written a book um, called Reclaiming Our Space, and we'll get into that in the interview. The next voice you're going to hear um, is the interview that we had with Feminista Jones. We'll talk to y'all soon. Peace. Peace. And we're back. And as we said before the break, we have Feminista Jones on the show. Feminista, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Now, let me, uh, let me ask you this. For those of us who don't know you, would you mind sharing a bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, for those who don't know me, I am a writer. I am a social worker. I am an activist. I am a speaker, I am a mother, and I'm a really amazing friend. Oh, man, <laughs> I do, let's go, yes. <laughs> I do a lot around um, really advocating for girls and women, uh, advocating for racial justice. I do a lot of anti-poverty work. That's like my main primary focus is anti-poverty work. Yeah. And um, I'm located in Philadelphia. I'm a native New Yorker, but... I moved to Philadelphia a couple of years ago because I really wanted to do work to fight poverty. And the city has such a high poverty rate uh, that I wanted to come here and see what work I could help, you know, and get done while I'm out here. So today we're talking about supporting black women in the workplace. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I am familiar with your content and your work through social Mm -hmm. media. We're excited Mm -hmm. to have you here because of your thought leadership in this arena. So what do you think are some practical ways black women can be better advocated for and supported in their nine to five jobs? This is a really great question. Uh, I'm someone who is in a senior management position um, in the social work field, in the community activism field. And a lot of people have misconceptions about, you know, community work and social work and think that it's just about low paying work all the time. And some of it is, but there is a lot of opportunities to move up. And um, when you're in a senior level position, you've got to use multiple skill sets. And I think just for black women, you know, people make a lot of assumptions that we can do so much and all the time and they rely on us to do that. So I think a lot of times um, people take for granted the contributions that we make or they take advantage of them and they may expect that, you know, black women will just handle it, you know, whatever the the fires that need to be put out, black women come with an extinguisher, or, mm. you know, we're the problem solvers. And a lot of times, you know, we, we have no choice. Like we have to, because we're looked at, 
you know, one is being black, two is being women. We're looked at as being doubly, you know, right. incompetent. Right. I feel like we work so hard to prove it otherwise. Mm-hmm. And you're working um, alongside men or alongside white people or working, reporting to men and reporting white people. You have to, like, be mindful of how you're going to be perceived. And I think one of the biggest challenges facing black women in the workplace is this idea that people make assumptions about our attitude and our personality and just based on our affect or, you know, they, they say we have attitudes or we have issues with communication. And that's one of the things that I struggle with because I feel like men are celebrated for being, you know, direct and blunt and forward and aggressive. Um, I think, I feel like white people are celebrated for like not taking no for an answer and, Mm -hmm. you know, really kind of just putting it out there and taking risks. But it's like, when black women do it, you know, people kind of look at us like, you know, we just tried to suggest something really radical. Um, they kind of look at us like, how dare you almost. And it's, and it sucks because we are smart. We are capable. We are talented. Um, and sometimes it's just, we're not appreciated simply because we're black women. That's just, that's so true. Right. So like as a black man in the workplace, so I'm a consultant and I don't often really work with black women on projects. I don't really work with other black people often, but mm-hmm. when I do, I notice that there's this, there's this pattern where if a black woman speaks up, I've noticed where if they speak up and they're being assertive, it is taken completely differently than when uh, a white woman speaks up as being assertive. Um, mm-hmm. and, and certainly when a man, especially a white man speaks up and is being assertive. Now mm-hmm. speaking for myself as a black man, um, there's also like a weird balance, right? Because we, like black men do participate in patriarchy, of course. And we also, are, we also sit higher on the privilege pyramid than black women. And at the same time, uh, there's a, there's a certain level of, uh, balance in terms of not being too assertive, but not, but being, not being assertive enough at the same time. It's, 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 it's like you clearly can't win for losing. So, so I definitely, I, I relate to that. And I'm, and I have, and I've seen, I've just seen it more than a few times with, uh, black women, especially if they're, you know, a bit more seasoned in their careers to say if they're like over 35 and mm-hmm. they really know what they're talking about, they're yeah. often seen as, a, they're often seen as a threat as opposed absolutely, to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to touch really quickly what you're saying about, you know, black men in the workplace. Like I've had situations where I've been, you know, on the same level as a black man and mm. like he's made mistakes and I'm like, I'm not trying to have this brother go down, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because he's messed up or I'm not going to make him look bad in front of these white people that hire, you know, <laughs> that are over all of us. But at the same time, I'm looking like, bruh, like I need you to get it together. And support me. You can't rely on me to fix all of your things. That's you know, so like it's like, you know, that I have a certain skill set. You know that I'm not going to let you fail because you're my brother. But at the same time, don't take that for granted. That's and so then true. when you do have the the space to advocate for me as like a woman, I need you to do that. Right. And I think, you know, one of my colleagues, I had a great conversation with him and he said, you know, I can get the race stuff with a snap of a finger. He said, but every time you point out something about gender, he said, I think about it. Like, what if this was being said about a white person? And he's like, and I feel so stupid that I don't get it, you know? And so it's mm-hmm. like, there's work to be done. And he's acknowledging that like, some of his gender stuff is still real and it's almost like I have to compare it to race to help him to see it more. And he hates, like he feels so bad and he like resents it, but you know, definitely he's getting better and I respect him for at least doing the work. But there is, there are like those boys club kind of environments that while I know a lot of brothers say that, you know, they have their own experiences, they're still invited into those clubs before we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I've been married for about five years and uh, mm-hmm. five and a half years and being married has really helped open my eyes to, to male privilege. And again, like mm-hmm. it's a, I think, I think black men, like we can get really sensitive about kind of broaching that topic. Cause it's like, well, there's still racism. It's like, no, absolutely. Like white supremacy still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it subjugates all non, non-white people uh, at the same time. There's still a nuance and element of, privilege that we we participate in because we are men and mm-hmm. and it's important to realize that also to your point around women helping you say you help you've helped mm-hmm. your colleagues in the past because they're a brother and like shout out to the countless black women in my career who have pulled me aside and helped me and taken the time mm-hmm. just felt the need to just educate me or mentor me really that's really the inspiration behind mm-hmm. living corporate because i didn't have a lot of those people in my family 
coming up giving me, you know, professional wisdom and insights, but it will often be black women right. pulling me aside and being like, hey, look, now I know she did this. Now I hear that a lot. <laughs> you know, if my colleague listens to this, he'll laugh because just the other day we were at the, we were at a conference and we went to the bar and I sat him down and we were drinking and I turned to him and I said, look, I'm going to need you to get your S together. You know what I mean? Like, I really, he said, you know, and he got quiet. He's like, I know it's coming from love. I know it's coming from a good place. But right. it's 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 like, it is. Because it it's is. like, brother, I don't want to see you fail. But, you know, you, some of the things you're doing, it's like, I need you to do better. And I said, I'm going to help you because I have the resources. And I have, you know, the ability to do that because I want to see you succeed. And I think sometimes, you know, I think within our within our spaces, particularly as black women, it's like, we are so few when we're in, you know, these upper spaces. It's yep. like we look to each other to build community. Yep. And it's like, that's all we got. Right. <laughs> you know, that's really all we got. And so it's hard when there's tension there because it's like we shouldn't have tension between us. Yes. We can disagree on things, but honestly, we all we got. We got <laughs> so to work, work together. And that's the approach I take. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to get off too much of a tangent, mm-hmm. but your other point around there's like this desire and like, cause I'm a, I cape for black women every day. Like I have to, my mom is black. My wife is black. Like my black sisters. I love, I love black women. Right. So, but, and what I realized is a lot of times I do believe that there has, there is a pattern of black men, like using up black women, like as means of support and encouragement and all these different things. Um, and really taking it, taking them for granted, like taking them. And I've seen it. I have seen it in the professional workplace. Of course, I've seen it in the workplace. We see it in relationships. We see it. We see it in a variety of spaces. And I do believe to your other, to your point around black men need to play a more assertive part in advocating for speaking up and supporting black women as well. Um, OK, mm-hmm. so let me ask you this. You know, I, I do feel as if language is becoming more inclusive, but at the same time, not as explicit when it comes to centering blackness, specifically black women. So as an example, we hear things like person of color or women of color, but mm-hmm. that often in my opinion erases the uniqueness of black identity and mm-hmm. black feminine identity. So my question is one, am I tripping? And if two, if not, then what are ways to affirm and assert intersectional identity? Do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, you're not tripping. And I think, you know, anti-blackness is, uh, you know, a quite valuable currency, even among black people. Um, we, we have all internalized the idea that black is bad. Um, and it's going to take generations, centuries of work to collectively divest of that idea that blackness is tarnishing. Blackness is a blemish. And so there are people who will say women of color, people of color, um, rather than just saying black, because people have been a afraid to say black. And, you know, and, and of course, for some people, you know, black means a black American. But for me, you know, when I say black, I mean, you know, inclusive of everyone in diaspora, whether yeah. you are from the continent, whether you're from South America, North America, Asia, wherever, Europe. Um, for me, that's just a, a unifier. Um, for others, it, it means different things. And, you know, so a lot of times people shy away from that. And then when they say people of color or they say women of color, in many ways, it does dilute the, the, the focus. And what happens is this. So much of what happens to women, like say in a negative way, happens to black women. Um, and so people want to use our statistics to make their points. And so they'll say women of color, right? But of those 10 women of color, like seven of them are black. Yeah. And so they can say, you know, 70% of women of color experience this. And it's like, yes, seven black women (laughs) experience (laughs) that. Um, We see that in the feminist movement. We see that in the queer movement. We see that wherever black people exist, folks want to use our statistics to push their agenda. And I have a problem with that. I have a very serious problem with that. And I agree with you. Like, we need to name blackness for what it is. Or if you want to say African-American or Afro-Latino, whatever you want to say, we need to name it for what it is. Because it's real. Like, you look at some place like Brazil, it's like, you can't say there's 55 million, you know, women of color in Brazil. No, there's 55 million black women right. yes. in Brazil, you know. And that's more black. There's more black women there than there are black people in the United States. So, no, we have to name these things. And it's powerful. It's powerful when you name blackness for what it is, for its achievement and success, but also for its struggle, 
because it puts the focus and the spotlight on us. So like when you're talking about black women and black feminine identity, uh, particularly like in the workspace and beyond, we have to focus specifically on that because an Asian woman is not facing the same hair issues. She right. may have similar name issues on her resume, right? right? But she's not she's not facing the hair issues, right? An Indian woman may be seen as, you know, she's super smart with tech because that's an assumption that is made. You know, it's it's very different for her, for us. Yeah. You know, even a biracial woman, you know, may not have the same issues with colorism if her if her skin tone is lighter. You know, there's there's a lot of things that are going on there that we need to name explicitly. And see, I think, and I, I, my, my anxiety about even bringing that question up is that I think people will hear that and say, okay, well now you're excluding other people. Well, not at all. Really what we're trying to do is push that we're explicit with identity language across the board, right? So you just gave three examples, right? Of why it's important to be specific when it comes to speaking to identity and intersectionality. I believe that we see it at a larger point, and we talked about this in season one around uh, the 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 pay gap, and we talked about we we talked about that from perspective of you know when you conflate gender across the board and you say well women believe this or and men are like this well no like that's I mean just like just being at a very just initial cut black men and white men do not have the same experiences. Black Mm -hmm. women and white women do not have the same experiences. Asian women and white women Mm -hmm. don't have the same experiences. So it's really empowering across. If we can have the courage to, to just speak, to speak explicitly to who we're talking about. Yeah. And I mean, the experiences are different. People will say, Oh, women make 77 cents on a dollar, but that's not true for a black woman. Black women as well, like 56 cents, 54 cents or something like that. It is. Yeah. and it's like, again, but that's like padding the numbers and things like that to bring down the average. Because I believe like, I think I read something like Asian women are on par with white yes. men and, so, white, and white women are like 80% or something like so that. Like so it's, it's crazy. Like the numbers, absolutely. So like agreeing with you. So like, you know, I've seen, I've seen numbers that are, you know, if like, so white men are a hundred and then uh, white women might be at like 77 cents, black women are at 64 cents and black men are at like 67 cents or 68 cents. But like, we never talk about, we never talk, we not, we never talk about, that's not fair because there's plenty of people driving those discussions. But when you talk about like the, the major narrative talking points in, in the media, we don't ever talk about the fact that like, white women make more than black men like that's we've i don't i've never heard that right i'm not, and I'm oh, not I, i've heard that discussion quite a bit i mean it just we, we may just be in different circles but i, I defer I've, you know i've heard it quite a bit and it is important you know to discuss because i mean it's the truth right so it's like <laughs> you know but we black women just kind of sit back and be like y'all have at it because you're either going to bicker over the race thing or you're going to bicker over the it's gender never thing. both right and guess, we're both we're the ones that are saying it's both right you know it's never it's never listen to us on either side it's so no, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right no, you're absolutely right and so and no, i defer I, I i would trust that if you've heard it then it's then it's then those conversations are happening in the right places um, um, so i believe that leads us well into your book reclaiming our space can you talk a bit about about the book and how you arrived at that title the title uh, was really interesting it took us a while to get there i didn't know what i wanted to call it <laughs> I, what I did know was, and you know, shout out to my editor Rakia Clark at uh, Beacon Press. She's amazing. She's uh, she's fantastic. She helped me along the way. On okay, so if we talk about the book, um, I they they came. She came to me, right? I guess a, she was among a bunch of folks who thought I'd already written something like this because my first two books were self published and did really well. And so I was never like I wasn't looking for a publishing agent or publisher or anything like that. I wasn't looking for a literary agent. Um, I was like, I can just do it myself, <laughs> you know, and cut out the middle person. Um, but when she came to me and, and approached me and was like, you know, have you written anything like this? And I was like, no. She was like, well, do you want to? Like, we're interested in this. And I was like, what? Sure. Okay. <laughs> and um, the idea was really to write about not just modern black feminism, but specifically kind of go to speak to my experiences and those of my peers of existing as black feminists in these digital spaces. Um, so ultimately the book is about how black feminists and black women, even those that don't openly identify as feminists, have been able to build community by using digital platforms 
and how social media has been a, you know, basically a change agent in how we do activism or how we connect across the world and how it's changed our ability to, to get our messaging out and to change the face of feminism. Um, and we've been able to educate people and influence popular culture and shape laws and everything. You know, I talk about our political influence. I talk about our, you know, influence on television and, you know, this whole live tweeting thing came from us. And, you know, we're talking about black women voting. We're talking about uh, critiquing white feminism. We're talking about even things down to like quote tweeting and threading tweets and things like that. Like all these things really became popular because of us. So I, I do a deep dive into that, but I start off with basics of, you know, what is black feminism? I wanted to write a primer for black feminism that was accessible to people of today. We know that people have shorter attention spans. They really want the hot takes. They want the summaries and things like that. They're not going to sit down with a, a thick Patricia Hill Collins book, although they should. They're not going back and reading, you know, everything from Bell Hooks, everything from Toni Morrison. They mm. may not even know who Florence Kennedy is, right? Right. But they need to. And so I was like, well, how do I tell our story? Because I need to show how we got here. And so I do give a, a very straightforward, quick primer on black feminism. And I go back like 125 years or so. And then I bring us to the present. And I'm like, well, here are your modern black feminists of today. And so I'm talking about like my sister Jamila Lemieux. I'm talking about Imani Gandhi. I'm talking about Zerlina um, Maxwell. I'm talking about, you know, these really, Kashawn Thompson who created Black Girls of Magic. Um, you know, I'm talking about these women who right now in present day are making history. I talk about Trudy, um, you know, and, and just a bunch of others. They're currently making history, not just black history, not just women's history, but they are making history in the ways in which they are transforming these social media platforms. We are creating campaigns. We are, you know, changing literally the world and culture. And I'm writing all about it because I felt that it needed to be documented. We needed to have something that encapsulated this entire moment right now. So for our audience, I think many have heard of the term feminism, but the modifier mm -hmm. black is still new for a lot of people. So mm -hmm. would you mind explaining the difference between what we often think of as feminism and black feminism? That's a great question. I get it a lot. Um, and I, I think the, the difference is just we are directing people to our identity as black women, which we believe is important in every discussion about our womanhood. Um, and I think, as I said earlier, about kind of looking at the both sides of things, the gender and the race, um, there's a really great uh, collection of works um, that really references this idea that, you know, all of the, the men are black and all of the women are white. When we think about within our black community, you know, Blackness really is depicted through a black man. Yes. And those are our leaders. And those are the people we care more about when they're killed by police and mm -hmm. all these other things. And when it's for women, when we think woman, it's white women. Right. But some of us are we exist in the middle. And to say that we are feminists is, you know, it's a collective idea. All, all people, women, all women of all races can be feminists. But when we say that we are black feminists, we are saying, yes, we believe in women's rights. Yes, we support gender you know, equality, and yes, we support equity, but don't forget that we're black and that we have different issues on top of all of these other <laughs> issues that women deal with, right? right? So we have all the feminist issues and those that come with being not just black, but black women within the black community. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I have a colleague who is um, a very senior leader and she's a white woman. And she said, yeah, Zach, I mean, I'm a woman, but I'm white, right? Like, I don't have it that bad. And so, and, and she kind of chuckled about it and she was like, but like, let's be honest, I don't. And I said, okay. And so, you know, with that being said, you know, she's what right. I, she is right. <laughs> I said, yep. <laughs> she's right. Uh, yeah. I was, and I, and I laughed, I was, you know, to kind of as a segue or as a, as an aside, I laughed because I was so shocked because she's so senior and she was being, she was speaking so frankly that I said, mm -hmm. I laughed and I said, well, you know, you're, you're right. You're right. Um, and so, but it, it, it leads me to this question. What are some practical ways you believe white women can support black women generally and at work? And what have you seen be helpful in your journey? Um, if I say get out the way, is that too harsh? No. It's your interview. Um, 
you know, I mean, ultimately, um, the bottom line is this. There is no single person, I believe, that is willing to totally divest of whatever privilege they have if it means staying alive and it means that their children are fed. And I don't care who you are. You will cling to some privilege, whatever privilege you have, to make sure that you can stay alive and that your children are fed. With that said, there are white women who I have really come to know and and love and respect who value my opinions, my thoughts, my work, and amplify it without adding qualifiers to it. Um, They'll share my work. They'll share information about my articles and my books, and they'll direct people to events that I'm having or things like that. They'll use their platforms to really kind of boost, you know, the work that I and other people are doing, which is super important. Um, in In the quiet spaces that I don't even have access to, they'll stand up for me and folks like me. They'll call out people that are close to them, you know, even at the risk of losing those connections. Um, those are, those are women that I I find to be truly amazing. Um, when you're talking about in the corporate space, um, I'm coming from, you know, the social work nonprofit field. And we know that that field is ripe with white saviors and many liberal white women and men, you know, kind of get into this work because they want to do good and they want to help the needy. And sometimes, sometimes that can really be actually racist (laughs) because they, they, the assumptions they make Mm. about you know, people in need or poor people or black people or things like that right. under the guise of wanting to help can be rather violent. Right. So I've had my my share of run-ins with white women in that space because um, I'm like, you'll never tell me that you know what's better for a black child than I do. <laughs> and right. I don't care who you are. We have the same education and experience. Um, but what you can do in that space is really just to listen. And I think that, you know, social media definitely has Um, made it a lot easier to listen and to access the voices and experiences of marginalized folks, whereas um, a lot of white women never really had exposure, you know, in such even and and equal platforms. I can tweet just as much as you can. So we have an even playing field right there. Mm -hmm. And you can listen and you can read and you can learn from me as I'm telling you my experience that I just had today. (laughs) You don't have to pick up a book later on in the year of anecdotes. You can see right now that I'm telling you that 20 minutes ago, my white boss did this, you know? And I think that that's really helped um, white women come to understand the more about the daily experiences of of women of color and of black women specifically. So a lot of them are actually, you know, especially millennials, the younger folks are really kind of just like, Effort. I'm just gonna say what I need to say. Yeah, we with the smoke. Yeah. I'm gonna stand up for this black woman right here because this ain't right. You know, right. and I love the energy. I mean, you know, for an older person like myself, um, I really love the energy that I'm seeing. So maybe we'll see some major changes coming. Maybe so. That's my prayer for sure. Before we get out, let me ask you this: What was the process like for you writing this book? And I know you talked about the fact that you were self-published before. This is a different yes. journey. You know, did you learn anything about yourself from this journey? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, This is totally different. Uh, My first book I wrote over the course of two years. Um, The second one, I actually uh, pulled some pieces that I'd written before and wrote some new ones, but it only took me a few months. This one, I was on a deadline. I had like, you need this by this time and this by this time and you need to get this in and you need to review this and da, 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 we need this back by this day. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> um, I, I'm, I've, I've been the kind of person who, um, if you give me a deadline, it starts to feel like work. And sometimes when it starts to feel like work, it doesn't come as, you know, it doesn't flow as well. Um, so I struggled a little bit with that. Um, I had six months to write it, and um, the first two months, I just was like, what? (laughs) I was was like, what is going on? I just had, like, a really bad breakup. I was depressed. I was like, I don't want to do anything with anyone ever, and I don't talk to anyone. I I couldn't write a word. Hmm. And then my uh, editor gently nudged me and reminded me of that first check that I got. (laughs) And I was like, I should probably write this book. Um, The other thing, you know, I'm also, you know, a a mental health consumer and advocate. And I realized that um, part of my my writing struggle was the medication that I was that I've been taking 
it um it evens my mood so much that I'm like I can't I'm not creative. <laughs> I don't think of things. I couldn't I literally couldn't write. So for about a month I stopped taking my medication and I'll tell people I wrote about 80% of the book in a month wow. that month. And it was like kind of it was it was such a negotiation for me because I knew that without the medication I would be a bit manic, I would be a bit frenzied, you know, I would have these bouts with, you know, depression, whatever, but I knew I could get it done. And so there were days where, you know, I would write until three or four in the morning and, and just write like brilliant stuff like yeah. that I don't half remember now. So, wow. <laughs> and I, but I knew it was, it was a risk and, you know, I, I am being very transparent about it because you know, I, I just think it's important to do that, but it was a risk, but I was able to get it done. And so what I learned, I, it helped me really learn how much of my, you know, mental health experiences have been tied into my ability to write. Um, and it's been a fascinating, fascinating discovery. Um, so after the book was done, you know, I went back on the medication and I've been in therapy and what have you. Mm. But as I'm, as I was doing rewrites and things like that, and reviewing it, I was reading it like for the first time. I was just like, I wrote this. Wow. This is, I was, I just couldn't remember writing so much of it. And then I was like, I actually wrote this. And I was like, this is pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> but that, you know, so that is a very, very unique writing process. And it's funny because it's the first time I'm talking about it. Um, a very unique writing process that I, uh, I won't recommend to anybody else <laughs> ever. <laughs> But you know what? The easiest thing I'm going to have to say is this. Um, I enjoyed writing about my friends and myself. Because <laughs> yeah. that's really what I was doing. And if you can imagine, let's imagine we go back to the Harlem Renaissance, right? And we look at all those people that we group together as like these collectives from the Harlem Renaissance. Hmm. Imagine if one of them had been documenting <laughs> what they were doing at the time. It's kind of like the crisis. Like, I mean... Um, and these, you know, these other papers and stuff that they had, like, imagine if somebody actually wrote a book in real time, kind of documenting, yeah. you know, what was wow. happening and then that we were able to read it in their words. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so I get to write about all these women that I love and respect and love reading their writing, love having drinks with them, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, and I'm privileged. I'm privileged. And it was an honor for me to be able to document their contribution to black, black feminist work. That's amazing, um, and, <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm 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 certainly taken aback, and I'm excited and honored with the fact that you were able to you're uh, transparent enough to share your journey and and, and putting this work together. Uh, the book is called Reclaiming Our Space. Before we let you go, do you have any parting thoughts? Um, I'm just really excited that the book is coming out and that people can read it. and And I wrote it to make it accessible to teenage girls all the way up to your mima, your big mama. Um, I, I really hope that it gets into um, the hands of people that need it. And, and then maybe it could start to shift this discourse a bit and get black women a little bit more respect for what we're doing. Amen. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So thank you so much. Oh my gosh, this is great. No, this is great. So, so feminista. Um, so something that you should know is on our website, we have, something called favorite things. And that's when we highlight mm-hmm. books and, um, and even sometimes food and just other mm-hmm. items, things that we really care for. And your, your book, reclaiming our space will be, um, number one in our favorite things list. So oh, we're going to make sure that we push and encourage people to, to check it out, to buy it, um, and to, and to read it. So, so yeah. thank you so much. And, um, Appreciate we it. definitely consider you a friend of the show. We hope you can have you back. I'd love to come back. Thank you. All right now. Peace. And we're back. Thank you so much, Zach. That was amazing. Um, enjoyed that that conversation. I think it helped me really think through what it means to lift up the black women in your circle, not just your, your personal circle, because it's, it's really easy to uplift your friends, but also thinking through how you're uplifting the black women at work. Um, in the in your corporate spaces, wherever you might hold sway or have have some sort of influence that you might be able to to use to better help others. What part of the conversation did you really enjoy? So we had a conversation there. We talked about the fact that really, for me, 
black women have always been like the core of my support in my career right so um there was always some type of either kind of like motherly or kind of big aunt or big sister type figure around me like they would you know they would chastise me but it would always be out of love right it would always be in the in the spirit of I want you to do better or I know you can do better so I'm holding you accountable right and it was crazy because these these women who would again who would help me they were not getting the support that they needed and yet they still found it in themselves to give me the support that they knew I needed right and you know I think there's gonna have to be a day eventually I mean the day is now frankly right that black women are poured into right they can't continue just to be the exporter of support and wisdom and empathy and 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 effort right like they're going like they need to be imported into like they need to be given support they need to be empathized with they need to be heard they need to be uh and their word their word should be their word should be adhered to right like they they need the thing the things that they are giving they need to also receive. Hey, reciprocity. Reciprocity. Thank you. No, straight up, that's what that's the word really. It's reciprocity. Like they need that because I think so many times, like it's so interesting. Also, I've seen women at work, black women at work, who will eventually just get kind of fed up with like with the BS and kind of call people on it and like in a professional way, but it may be like a more um, assertive way. And then the, the the narrative is, oh, she has an attitude problem, or oh, she's she doesn't know how to handle it. She's like, no, she does she doesn't have an attitude problem. She's tired of y'all treating her like this. She's tired of she's tired of being the work mule for everybody, from a work perspective, from an emotional perspective. She's tired of it, and like, that's what it is. I just want to say how important that is because. Um, very often you'll hear about the trope of the angry black woman. I mean, it follows us everywhere, especially to corporate America. Um, and everybody wants to talk about the angry black woman, but nobody ever wants to talk about what y'all did to make her angry. Like, okay. So one, anger is a valid emotion. Wow. Right. I, I just, I, 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 I don't feel like running away from the trope. I, I, to be frank, so much occurs that we get to be upset about. Like everybody gets to be upset about whatever it is upsets them because that's their right. So I don't understand why it is up to black women. I mean, no, I do understand. I'm just saying that I'm done with that. Um, <laughs> Facts. Women very often will be will be graded on likability, um, and black women will be graded on likability and your ability to swallow a whole bunch of nonsense and just grin and bear it, right? Um, but if you decide right. that you are a not going to grin and bear it, and two, not only you not going to grin and bear it, you're going to alert the folks who um, feel as though it's your your duty to grin and bear it that uh you see through the bs and you will not be having any portion of it suddenly you're the bad guy um and so ultimately i think it's important that we take away from this if you feel as though the black women in corporate america or in your spaces or in your jobs are angry perhaps they have a right to be right there is this phenomenon um i i've noticed and I mean, I haven't conducted a federally funded uh, study of this, so <laughs> there's that. Most of this is from my own personal experiences. Um, right, right. But I've noticed that, you know, these companies will bring in somebody who me- meets their di- diversity quota. So in this situation, we're talking about bringing a black woman into your notoriously anti-black misogynistic spaces. Um and you just leave her to sink or swim, right? And so this woman is cataloging right. all of the ways in which you could be doing better as an organization and saying, hey, I have noticed that this is trash and there these are the ways in which you could do better. And instead of, you know, actually paying attention and doing better, like the ally you claim that you are, you ignore her, you shut her down, you make her feel as though... She is imagining things or pulling things out of thin air or that she is, in fact, the problem. 
And then when she finally gets fed up and goes, you know what? Y'all got it. I'm good. Suddenly she is the insane one in the in the scenario where suddenly she's the one that's making a big deal out of nothing or she's playing the victim um and this mass gaslighting of black women in corporate america one is trash two honestly i i, I feel as though we can't be the only ones who see it right no we're not no definitely not definitely and not even further here are some concrete ways in which I believe everyone could reach a hand out to the woman in your circle. One, it is not enough for you to simply have a diversity and inclusion program. I mean, that's cool and all, but a lot of your diversity and inclusion programs are flimsy is the word I want to use. Um, it's, it's the one G-rated word that I have off the top of my head to describe your diversity and inclusion programs. They're flimsy, mm-hmm. and they do not actually take into account the needs and experiences of the populations that you want to actually address. So, for one, every person that you hire, period, should feel like they're able to bring their whole selves to work. And I don't say, I don't, I'm not saying that they should show up to work in an unprofessional manner. They should show up to work and bring drama or chaos to work. That's clearly not what I'm saying. And I'm hoping that you people hear me when I say that. What I am saying is that I should not feel as though I have to decipher what it is that you want from me as an employee. Um, because you are uncomfortable just speaking to me like I'm a regular human being. I should not feel as though... I don't know what the company culture is because it is your responsibility um, as the company who creates the culture to communicate that clearly and honestly and fairly. Give me a fair shot to show that not only do I belong here, I can thrive here. And more importantly, do not put the onus on your individual employees to change the entire company structure. It is unfair. It is irrational um, to say that well they didn't say that they wanted a diversity or an employee resource group or they didn't say that they needed um, sponsorship programs that would you know put the black women on partnership track Uh, or they didn't say that they needed XYZ in order to be more successful it is it is your responsibility (laughs) as the the managers as the directors as the partners to reach out because you are the ones with power in your hands to do something about the situation um and and the environment that your employees are in and if you are a black woman who finds herself at work and incapable of really navigating your your career to the best of your abilities for one i am sorry It's trash. It is a terrible situation to be in, to feel as though you have walked a thousand miles, you've crossed deserts, you have swam oceans, you have done everything above and beyond where you felt that you needed to be, where everybody else needed to be. And you walk into the room and people are still questioning your right and your ability to be in there and succeed. That's trash. Secondly, find allies find a safe space find somebody who is able to look outside of themselves and see you and really want to help you and i'm sorry that again that it seems to be your responsibility to do so but we're gonna be all right and thirdly and i can't stress this enough find a therapist and here's why i say find a therapist You will have days at work, some days that will make you feel as though it is all in your head and you really have no idea what's going on. But when you write things down and you're able to really talk through what happened and why you feel the way that you do at work, it really helps. It helps you see yourself, see the truth of the situation, and also create like a plan of attack as to how you're going to address the nonsense um, that you are that you are facing. Um, I wish all of you 
love and light. I think we said all of that, not to be performative, but um, in the show notes, we'll have a list of suggested readings for anyone who's interested in really learning about the crux of um, the conversation today, which was black feminism. We'll have some books, including Mr. Jones' book called Reclaiming Our Space, to help those who are interested in really helping uh, black women at work. Zach, do you have any thoughts? I mean, nah, you said everything right there. I don't want to really encroach on your space. did a phenomenal job. Uh, let's, let's continue on with our favorite things. You ready? All right, guys. Favorite right. things. So this week, my favorite thing, uh, it's called The Self-Taught Programmer by Corey Altoff. Um, actually, let me read the whole title. The Self-Taught Programmer, The Definitive Guide to Programming Professionally. Um, and I've been reading this book, I mean, for the last couple of days between um, studying, and it feels good. I mean, it's giving some super actionable advice. It's not like a code-heavy or an algorithm-heavy book. Um, instead, it, it talks about many of the habits that you need to build um, to be like to to be really successful and have a sustainable um, trajectory. And it's it's been amazing. What about you? Yeah, so my favorite thing right now uh, is obviously Feminista Jones's new book, Reclaiming Our Space. It's a great, powerful, approachable read uh, when you talk about around all items black feminism. I love Feminista Jones' work. And what's refreshing about this book is that it captures the same unapologetic energy that she has. Like, that's really part of her brand, and it just captures it well in this book. I think a lot of times you can end up kind of reading someone's book, and it's like, man, this does not really capture your voice at all. It doesn't really, like, align with things that I've read or things that I've, other things that I've seen come from you. I mean, this, this is not that. I mean, it's also really convicting, right? Like, it, again, I think, I know rather that black women are often... Uh, their voices and experiences are often minimized even when it comes to inclusion and diversity discussions or in, uh, equity discussions, oftentimes with black men being the predominant uh, character in, the, in the, the narratives that we drive, right? So like when you, even when you talk about like a, a prominent example would be uh, police brutality. And they always say, you know, black men are killed at X, Y, Z rate that's disproportionate. And that's true. Black men are killed at ridiculously disproportionate rates. Uh, compared to their white counterparts, but do you know who's killed at even higher rates, disproportionate to the white counterparts? Black women, right? But like we don't. But when you talk about like the common talking headline, we don't say that. We don't say. We don't even just say black people. We say black men, right? Like there's a desire to to center them, to center us in a space that it's not even accurate, right? It's not even. It's not even the whole truth. And I think that you know it's important for black men to recognize, and we talked about this during the interview as well, but to recognize that, uh, yes, we are, uh, reci- we are on the receiving end of oppression uh, and white supremacy. We also benefit from a patriarchal society. And there are ways that we benefit from patriarchy that black women do not. And it is important for us to, to leverage that little bit of privilege that we have um, to help black women because they, they don't have it. And that reminds me also, uh, we actually have a couple of copies of her book. Hey. We'll be giving them hey. away. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to be entered in a drawing to win a copy of Feminist Jones' book, Reclaiming Our Space, at us a screenshot of a five-star review on iTunes and caption Live Incorporate. Okay? So go on Instagram, take a picture, screenshot your five-star review on iTunes, and then tag us in it. And we'll make sure to put you in a drawing so you can get the book. Dope. Well, thank you for joining us on the Living Corporate Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Living Corporate, Twitter at Living Corp underscore pod, and subscribe to our newsletter through www.living-corporate.com. If you have a question you'd like us to answer and read on the show, please make sure you email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. That's it for us today. This has been Ade. This has been Zach. Peace. Peace. 
Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.